is God a God of love or is he a God of justice? <laughs> you all caught the problem with the question because the problem is it's not or. It's and. God is a God of love and he is a God of justice. In 1971, John Lennon released the album Imagine, and the album and the song Imagine both hit number one on the charts. I'm sure at some point all of us have heard the song, Imagine There's No Heaven, It's Easy If You Try, No Hell Below Us, Above Us Only Sky, Imagine All the People Living For Today, Imagine. Frankly, I'm not interested in imagining a world like that. A world in which people live only for today. A world in which a child molester might never face judgment for their crimes. A universe in which there would be no final justice for somebody like Adolf Hitler or Stalin. John Lennon said that imagine, which says imagine there was no more religion, no more country, no more politics. Lennon said it's virtually the communist manifesto. Well, quite frankly, I'm not really interested in living in a world of communism. For the last 100 plus years, there's been over 100 million people who died as a result of communist policies. So I don't really want to live in that world either. So you have to forgive me if I'm not interested in imagining that kind of world. Now, I've not said all that to discuss politics or political ide ideologies, but to illustrate the fact that in eternity, a world and an eternity without both God's love and God's justice is not a world that any of us would want to live in. In fact, a world without God's love and God's justice is hell. Christians have often had a hard time deciding if God was a God of both love and justice or a God of love or justice. You may remember from several weeks ago, I talked to you about that early heretic Marcion. Marcion claimed that the God of the Old Testament was a God of justice. He, he believed that the Old Testament God was kind of this mean God that, that uh, you know, the Jewish God as he taught it. And he believed the New Testament God was the supreme father of our Lord Jesus Christ and that he was a God of love. And so he took parts of the New Testament, the parts he liked, and said that's, he, he created kind of his own Bible and said, well, God's a God of love, not justice. And the Apostles' Creed, in part, was created to help show that that is not what Christians believe. In fact, it shows us, the Apostles' Creed shows us how determined the early church was to make it clear that we don't hold those kind of views. But the problem still, unfortunately, it still exists today, doesn't it? There's a lot of churches who have completely lost their way. 
They've lost sense of a proper understanding of God's justice. A lot of churches will say a lot about God's love, as we should, because He is a God of love. But they say little or nothing about God's justice. Should we love everyone? Absolutely. Should we ever, as believers, mistreat anyone? Of course not. But we must love people enough to tell them what God says about certain behaviors, certain ways of living. Because there are some things that God says, if you do these things, you will not inherit eternal life. In other words, you'll be headed in the other direction. And if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you have to repent and turn away from those sinful behaviors. Because if you do not, you will receive the just punishment for your sins. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul asked the church at Corinth, he said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then I love the next part. And such were some of you. I'm thankful this morning that God can still transform people's lives. No matter how dark, no matter what your past may have been, Jesus Christ can transform you. But you've got to understand that those behaviors, those ways of living are not acceptable in God's sight and are sinful and must be repented of and turned from. Such as were some of you, but you are washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Either God's Word says what it says, or it doesn't. And if you don't believe what it says, you have no business claiming to be a Christian and a follower of the one who inspired God's Word. Now, the context that goes right before 1 Corinthians 6 is in chapter 5, Paul had wrote to the Corinthian church and he said this, he said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. You can't help but associate with sinful people. God never intended for his church to isolate themselves from the world. That was never God's intention. But Paul goes on and he says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. In other words, anyone who claims to be a Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is, not, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? 
God judges those outside. In other words, God judges those who don't claim to be a Christian. But we as the church have the responsibility to purge the evil person from among you. That's what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Unfortunately, the church has often failed in this responsibility because it's not easy. It's not easy when those who are charged with the responsibility of making those kind of difficult decisions after they followed the Scripture commands to do so because you can't make everybody happy. And the church of Corinth was trying to make everybody happy and Paul said, wait a minute, you can't do that. Now, I'm getting back to the Apostles' Creed, just hang steady. This is all introduction. i got a whole sermon ahead of me here, so just hang with me for a minute. You know one of the common traits of psychopaths? I watched a little interview this week. One of the traits of psychopaths is often their parents or parent never discipline them for their wrong behavior. They always got their way as children. Their parents became afraid to discipline them because if they did, the child would then react. And so the parent just ends up letting the child get their way rather than discipline them. Parents have the responsibility to lovingly correct their children and administer justice when children disobey. But it's fascinating. I watched this clip this week, and the psychopath was talking about he had murdered a couple people. And he was talking about how he hated his mother. And the reason why he hated his mother is she never disciplined him. Fascinating to me. You see, a lot of people want to treat God like that. God's perfect love demands that he judge sin. And the final judgment is the righteous response of a loving God to rebellion and wickedness. You see, God is both a God of love and of justice. He will someday put all things right. He will judge the world in righteousness, is what Scripture says. And the Apostles' Creed says, I believe that He ascended to heaven, we talked about that last week, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, He will come to judge the living and the dead. One of the essential beliefs of Christianity is that Jesus Christ is going to return, and when He returns, He will judge. We saw last week how that after He ascended to heaven, the angels told those who were watching, said, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. He ascended into heaven. He's going to come back. And He's going to judge the living and the dead because He is a God of justice. Ben sang one of my favorite songs a little while ago. Like a bride waiting for the groom will be a church ready for you. Every heart longing for the King. Even so, come. Lord Jesus, come. I don't know, some of you would, may have attended 
these names aren't going to mean anything to some of you, but some of us know a couple named Brittany Pond and Luke Self. And if you attended their wedding here, I think it was last year, it was the first wedding I'd ever seen where this took place. But they had that particular song played. And when the bride would normally come down the aisle, the bride didn't come down the aisle. Brittany was on the platform and the groom came down the aisle. Because like a bride, she was waiting for her groom. As you know, in the Bible, Christians are referred to as the bride of Christ. And we're awaiting our groom. We're awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. We're awaiting the marriage supper of the Lamb where we will forever be with Jesus. And marriage is a picture of Christ and His church. Paul said Christ loved the church and He gave Himself for it that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the Word that He might present her to Himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Christ wants His bride to be holy, to be pure. Paul told the Corinthian church, he said, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The biblical idea of marriage is that the bride and groom are to be pure, to be virgins on their wedding day. That's the biblical ideal. The sexual union between husband and wife was meant for just that, between husband and wife. And sin happens when we get outside of God's will. And that's a picture of how the church is to wait for Christ's return in purity. There's to be a holy waiting for Christ's return. There's lots of things in the Bible that can be said about Christ's return. You remember in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus told the story of the ten virgins. That story of a Jewish wedding. And in a Jewish wedding, after the betrothal, the bride would wait for several months while the groom prepared their new house. And when everything was ready, the groom would then come and claim his bride. And at the sound of the approaching party, the bride and her maids would run to meet the bridegroom. Then together they would travel in a joyous procession to their new home. Their wedding would be a grand celebration followed by a week of feasting. Taylor and Renee, you guys, you only had a couple hours of feasting. But in a Jewish wedding, it'd be a week of feasting. And you remember the parable Jesus told of those ten virgins. He said there was five wise and five foolish. And the five foolish took their lamps without any oil in them. And they weren't ready when the bridegroom came. And Jesus ends that parable... And he gives the lesson of the parable. He says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. None of us know when Jesus Christ is going to return, including that guy on TV or that guy you read in a book. They're just ripping people off. And they've been there, they've been around for thousands of years, people predicting Jesus' return. No one knows when he's going to come back. We just have to be ready. We have to be ready. 
And so we wait. We wait for You. God, we wait. You're coming soon. Like a bride waiting for her groom. We'll be the church. We'll be ready for You. Every heart longing for her King. We sing, even so come, Lord Jesus, come. Holiness and hope go together in the Lord's return. Any discussion about Christ's return ought to always include those two elements. Holiness and hope. People love to speculate about Christ's return. When's He going to come back? Is it pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? Pre-millennial, amillennial, post-millennial? Pan-millennial? It's all going to pan out in the end? We all got opinions, and of course my opinion is right. Yours is wrong if you disagree with me. I'm teasing. But what must accompany any talk of Christ's return is it should include hope and holiness always. So look with me at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. That was all my introduction. Good thing is I don't have a whole lot of body this morning. I've got a long introduction and a short body. You'll figure that out later. All right, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica and he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers as it is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore we ourselves boast about you and the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who believe, who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot about that passage that I could talk about. It's one of Paul's interesting passages. Verse 3 to verse 10 is all one long Pauline run-on sentence. It's all one sentence in Greek. Verse 3 to verse 10. There's a lot I could cover there this morning, but I'm not going to be able to get to it all. If you've ever, though, been, if you've ever been in a car with kids on a road trip, What's one of the questions they ask you? Are we there yet? And what question follows that one? How much longer? 
It never fails. It's every kid and every generation who's ever rode in a car and probably everyone that ever rode in a horse and buggy or whatever else they used to ride in. I mean, can you imagine going on a long road trip in a horse and buggy with kids? I started to say, shoot me in the head, but that wouldn't be appropriate for me to say. It wouldn't be appropriate at all. The reality is those two questions, though, are the ones the Thessalonians were asking. They were being persecuted. They were suffering. They were being alarmed by false teaching. There was false teaching going around that was saying that the day of the Lord had already arrived. Paul had to deal with that. And at some point in all of our lives, we all ask the question of God, God, how much longer? How much longer is this going to go on? And it's a common question. For instance, Habakkuk, he asked, he said, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Habakkuk was asking God, God, how much longer? How much longer, God, until you bring justice? You see, oftentimes, you don't sense the need for justice until you've been done wrong. Other people can be, be done wrong around you, but if your life is just going swimmingly well, you don't notice oftentimes people around you that are suffering. But you know what? I know that you will want justice too. You know how I know that? Because if I walked up to you and I slapped you across the face, you'd immediately want justice from me. Wouldn't you? I'm not going to do that, okay? But justice is a natural instinct that God created us to long for. King David asked the question in Psalm 13. He said, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? If you read those Psalms and it doesn't touch you, it's probably because at that point in your life you're not suffering. But when you start to go through some suffering, all of a sudden those psalms become very real to you. Because they're the cries of the human heart. Because we all have times in our life when we just wonder, God, how much longer, how much longer are you going to tolerate this injustice, God? There's a story about two farmers. One was a believer and one was an atheist. Harvest time came, and the atheist field was rich with crops, and the Christian's field hardly produced anything. And the atheist began to taunt the Christian, began to tell him, say, you know, it doesn't pay for you to serve God. If there was a God, he would love you enough to actually give you crops. I don't believe in God, and I have all the crops I need and more. And the Christian looked at the atheist and he said, it does pay to serve him. But you must remember that God does not always settle his accounts in October. And God doesn't always settle his accounts at the time maybe that we think he should. 
But there's coming a day when God is going to settle all the accounts. And He is going to do all things rightly. He's going to do all things justly. One of the most difficult things is when you're walking through painful times is to keep a proper perspective. You see, because a loss of perspective is always followed by a loss of purpose. And it's easy for us when you're suffering to get a loss of perspective and begin to lose purpose. And when our minds become fixed on what we don't like about the circumstances of our lives, we inevitably will will begin to fail to consider what God may be doing in our circumstances. It's just easy for us when we're suffering to cry out and say, God, how long? And that's a natural cry. But we must remember that God always does all things well. Paul writes to these Thessalonian believers and he shares with them his thanksgiving. They, they, uh, they, they possess a faith that's real. He talks about how they have a love that's growing strong. How they have a faith that goes deep. How their future is secure. But I want you to see something in verse 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5 again. I just read it. But I want you to see something here. Paul says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom for which you are also suffering. Our suffering, God's judgment, and our worthiness to enter the kingdom are inseparably linked together. And it's difficult for us to always understand this. Paul said it's clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you're considered worthy of God's kingdom for which you are also suffering. You're suffering, and it's for Christ's kingdom, and that's clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you're counted worthy to do that. Their suffering, the Thessalonians' suffering, wasn't what secured their salvation. Their suffering was evidence that their salvation had already been secured for them. And to put it another way, they were not made worthy of the kingdom because they suffered. They were counted worthy of the kingdom because they suffered. And it's hard for me to wrap my mind around it. Think about being counted worthy of the kingdom of God. None of us are worthy of of the kingdom of God. None of us. If you think you're worthy, you're deceived. None of us could ever do anything in and of ourselves to be worthy of the kingdom of God. But, Paul says that when you suffer for Christ's sake, it's because you've been counted worthy of his kingdom. You wrap your mind around that and then figure it out for me. But this puts a a, a totally different picture of our suffering. Our suffering may be evidence that he loves us. 
not that he's abandoned us. You see, what happens when we suffer is the enemy loves to tell us God's forgot about you. If God really loved you, this wouldn't have happened to you. The reality is actually the opposite of that. This may be happening to you, and it's, it's evidence that God does love you. And you, what? Paul writes to Philippians, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Been granted for you. Thank you very much, God. But that's what Paul says. Worthy to suffer on Christ's behalf. Why was it that the early church and the disciples could face the persecution that they faced, be boiled in hot oil, crucified upside down, and on and on the list of terrible deaths because they knew they were being counted worthy to suffer for Christ's sake? C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. None of us want to suffer. But it may be that suffering is coming. And it may be that God wants to use our suffering to rouse a deaf world. Why is it that the church in China explodes while the church in America goes downhill? Because in China, it means something to be a Christian. Here in America, you've been able to claim to be a Christian and not possess an ounce of grace. You've just taken the name of Jesus. It was culturally acceptable for a season to be a Christian in America. That season is over. It's no longer culturally acceptable at least to believe some of the scriptures that I read earlier. And persecution may be coming, and if it comes, may God help us to consider it God's favor rather than God's punishment, as the enemy will tell us. Well, all that being said, let's just wrap this up. Two quick things. I want you to see this morning about Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is coming back, and for the believer, the future is hopeful. The future is hopeful. He's coming back to judge the living and the dead, and when he comes back, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's going to provide relief from our enemies. In verse 7, Paul says he will grant relief to those who are afflicted. This world is no friend of grace, and despite our best efforts to live at peace with everyone as much as we can, there's still going to be people who despise you and persecute you and say all kinds of manner of evil against you falsely, Jesus said, for my sake. But when Jesus comes back, he's going to give relief from all of that. It's all going to be over. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. He's going to be glorified in his saints, is what Paul says in verse 10. He's going to be marveled at among all who believe. Oh, it's going to be worth it all. The future is hopeful. 
for the believer, but Jesus is also coming back, and for the sinner, the future will be fateful. People don't like to admit they're guilty. We love to try to rename sin. It's not a sin, it's a mistake. We'll blame our behavior on anything and anyone other than ourselves. It's my parents' fault. It's your fault. It's everybody's fault except for yours, for your behavior. But there's coming a day of ultimate accountability where every one of us are going to be held accountable for how we have lived. God is a just God. And justice demands punishment for evil. We want God to be just. We want Him to judge the evil of serial killers and Adolf Hitler. We're thankful for that. But look at verse 6 again. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. We like that. If we're afflicted, we want God to be just. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day. When it comes to our sin, we often want to excuse it. And we hope that on Judgment Day, God will overlook it. But let me just remind you this morning, God does not set aside His justice when He redeems sinners. If God sacrificed His justice to pardon a sinner, He would no longer be God. God does not set aside His justice when He redeems sinners. But what did He do? Well, through His substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, God provided a way to show mercy without doing away with His justice. The justice that you and I deserve for our sins, Jesus met out, or God met out on Jesus. Jesus suffered in our place and in your place for our sins. And because of His mercy, we don't have to endure His justice. But today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. None of us are. We're not guaranteed tomorrow that we'll live. You're not guaranteed tomorrow that God's Spirit will speak to your heart. So today is the day of salvation. I can't promise you that tomorrow you'll be able to find forgiveness for your sins, but I can promise you that if right now, if God is speaking to your heart, I can assure you that right now there is forgiveness available for you for your sins because Jesus Christ bore the justice that you and I deserve. 
Love does not mean allowing others to do as they please. You see, this is where many people have gotten off track. We love everyone. And so we allow things that God has said is sin, even within the church. Love does not mean allowing people to do what they please. A truly loving mother will demand that her son obey, not because it pleases her, but because she knows that that good behavior will ultimately be good for the child. When a mother demands that her son obey, she's doing so for his benefit. When a father allows his daughter to do as she pleases and tells her that it's okay, that father is not a good father. You see, love truly wishes the best for the beloved. And such love ultimately will always coincide with justice. In other words, if you and I tell somebody, oh, we love you just the way you are, and we do love everyone, we are to love everyone. We're never to mistreat anyone. But for the grace of God, there go I. Always, we must remember that. But while we love people, we must not approve of behaviors that God has said is wrong. When we do, we create little spiritual psychopaths who think you can live any way you want to and get away with it. Jesus is coming back and he's coming back to judge and he is a just judge. Human justice is always limited. There are bad judges. You know what a bad judge is? A judge who does not uphold justice. If you had a loved one who was murdered and the judge let that murderer get off because of some technicality or maybe that murderer's parent crossed their eyes at him when they were a child you would say that judge is a bad judge human justice is always limited but God's justice is always righteous and perfect in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham asked, Will not the judge of the earth do what is right? And the answer is, he will, and he does. And sadly, the lake of fire will be the destination for many. Jesus is not coming back to inflict some kind of apocalyptic carnage on a bunch of innocent agnostics. Jesus is coming back to bring heavenly justice to a world that is submerged in wickedness and mired in corruption. C.S. Lewis said he never met a person who had a lively belief in heaven who did not also have a lively belief in hell. He said if a game is to be taken seriously, it must be possible to lose it. You and I were designed for heaven, not for hell. 
God doesn't want you to go there and He doesn't want anyone else to go there. He's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But God also offers to you the free moral decision to choose to love Him or not. Because a forced love is not love. And so God offers the possibility of forgiveness. But you have to be willing to take it. But when He returns and justice is poured out, if you have chosen evil, evil is what you'll get. You see, hell's punishment fits sin's crime because sin is divorce from God. The punishment fits the crime because the punishment is the crime. You see, when you say no to God, that means no God. When you say no to God, God will give you no God. And that's the most horrifying thing that could ever happen to any of us. That's why Romans chapter 1 talks about God giving over. Giving over to what people want. You want sinful behavior? You want this degrading behavior? God gives them over. He gives them what they want. And when sinful people get what they want, they end up with hell. That's what sinful people want. Jesus is coming back, and when he does, he's coming to judge the living and the dead. Are you ready for that day? I want to close with one more thing. While we wait, remember Ben's song? We will wait. So I want to talk to you if you're a sinner. What you need to do is you need to repent before it's too late. But what about us who are Christians who have repented? What do we do while we wait for His return? Well, just quickly, in light of Christ's return, we're called to endure and persevere until He comes. We endure, we persevere. That's a consistent call all throughout the New Testament. We must endure in faith. Faith must always be present tense. We also have a mission to evangelize the world. Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. We have a responsibility to evangelize the world and then in light of Christ's return, we're to called to encourage one another. Paul tells the Thessalonians, after telling them what was going to transpire at Christ's return, he tells them in 1 Thessalonians, therefore encourage one another with these words. Christ's return for the Christian is not a, something to fear. It is something that should encourage. And if it brings you fear, you probably need to do, allow the Holy Spirit to do some work in your heart. Because Christ's return is our glorious hope. And so we say, even so come, Lord Jesus come.
Maranatha.